0: In prayer with me as we approach God's Word this morning. Lord, if we were just to count the ways that you come down and visit us and condescend to us, we would be here all day and still wouldn't plumb the depths of your grace and mercy. But one of the ways you have visited us and continue on a weekly basis to visit us is by coming to us in the power of the Spirit in your word. Father, I wonder if we think about what it means when we read your word and we confess that it's living and active. In other words, by its very definition, it is not simply information to be absorbed. By its very definition, it is alive. It is probing our hearts. It is exposing ourselves to ourselves and it is, thankfully, revealing to us the mercies of Christ, the excellence of Christ. Our hope is in Jesus, your life, your death, your resurrection, your ascension, and that alone. And so, Lord, by your Spirit, may you reveal to us the glories of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. If you have Bibles, or whatever device you happen to bring, or the words will be up here on the wall, or even if you feel like looking down at your bulletins, whatever you might be led to do, our scripture reading this morning, the reading upon which the teaching is based is the end of chapter 7 of the book of Romans, verses 21 through 25. So friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. In my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin." Friends, this is the word of the Lord. It was maybe the third phone call I had received from this particular gentleman. We were living in Oklahoma, and Evie and I were kind of in the process of praying about our futures and whether God was calling us to planting a church. He had kind of put that desire on our hearts So we were talking to our senior pastor at the time, Chuck Garriott, who we support now with Ministry to State, and we were thinking about, Lord, what do do you want us to do? Kind of a simple prayer. And this church in Northern California that I had never heard of before, I think it was Walnut Creek, California, kept calling, seeking to recruit me to come and not plant a church, but revitalize their church. Now I want you to take note of something. The location is extremely important. Northern California. Evie and I had never lived there before. A little beyond our, we were young at the time, a little beyond our budget, and bringing a son who was maybe 9 or 10 years old at the time and who liked to eat. And I wanted to afford a house and that kind of stuff. So, of course, when I asked Evie about her interest in this possible call, she and, and my wife is an excellent, excellent communicator. So she told me in no uncertain terms that not a chance, Jeff. No, hang up on the guy. Don't even entertain this. But the man kept calling. And he kept inviting us, just come out and take a look. Fly out for a weekend. We'll wine and dine you. We'll go to wine country and Napa Valley and all this kind of stuff. And I kept going, my wife has no interest, my wife has no interest, you have no chance. This is not going to happen. And then he dropped the bombshell. He knew I enjoyed golf. And he says to me over the phone, by the way, I'm good friends with Johnny Miller. Now, for those of you who don't know, Johnny Miller was a professional golfer. Still, I think, doesn't he sometimes announce on NBC? And he says why don't you come out, we'll still do the wine and dine, but Johnny Miller can get us to play on Pebble Beach. Now, after I picked up my jaw, for those of you who don't know, in the golfing world, there are three places that I'm convinced when Jesus returns and he consummates the new heavens and the new earth, there are three places that's going to be heaven touching down to earth. It's Pebble Beach, Augusta National, and the old course at St. Andrews. Because that is, that's golfer's paradise so he's probably like are you still there are you still there and I'm going wait a second I haven't gotten past you're telling me I can play Pebble Beach for free with Johnny Miller and go out and do this ethical dilemma I know that there's no chance we're taking this do I take this man's money he's flying us out he's going to spend what thousands of dollars to do this what is a man to do So I find it to be a law within myself, Paul says, that when I want to do right, evil lies so close at hand. Now, I'm telling you this. Now, what did we do? We didn't go to Pebble Pebble Beach. So I guess we did. Yeah, I know it. Rick, to this day, it hurts. Even when I was thinking of this illustration this week, I'm like... Yeah, Jeff, it's appropriate, but it still brings a pain to the heart that I could have played Pebble Beach for free. And I give no credit to myself, because believe me, and this is the way I like. And when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Here's how I want you to picture, because Paul's teaching is this, and he's in a sense, I want you to think about everything he's taught up to now about the role of the law in the Christian's life. Here's what he's doing. He's wrapping it up and he's tying a bow on it. So verses 21 to 25 is Paul's summary, Paul's conclusion of his teaching on the role of the law in the Christian's life. And here's the way I would say to visualize it. Okay, if you want to think about what indwelling sin is like in our life. As we said last week, it's not our truest identity. It's not our true self. Paul says, I know that nothing good dwells within me. That is within my sinful nature, so he qualifies it. That is in my flesh. So we are who we are in Christ. That's your ultimate self. That's So when we read from Psalm 103, God does not deal with us according to our iniquities. I want you to think about those words. What does it mean to deal with somebody? It means how he relates to you. How he thinks of you. How he speaks to you. How he engages you. How he communes with you. And God says... I don't deal with you according to your flesh. I don't deal with you according to the evil that lies close behind. I don't, and here's how I want you to visual. It's not your truest self. It is a shadow that if you're walking in the sun, you have a shadow and you can't escape it. Dart to the left and what does the shadow do it? Darts to the left. Dart to the right and what does the shadow do it? Darts to the right. So it's always with you, but it's not your truest self. And God doesn't deal with us according to our iniquities. He doesn't engage with you and say, how could you be so stupid again to do that? Even though we're looking at ourselves, how do we deal with ourselves? I can tell you how I deal with myself 99% of the time. Jeff, how could you do that again? How dumb do you have to be? You're going to make the same foolish mistake again and again. Will you ever change? And God's word says he doesn't deal with us like that. He deals with us according to who we are in Christ. And that gives us the freedom, takes the pressure off, that we then, tying it up on a bow, can look at our lives, look at indwelling sin, and be honest about ourselves. And like Paul, ask two questions of this particular text. We want to learn When we look inside ourselves, when we look at ourselves, what do we find, and what do we conclude? Paul says he finds something, and you're going to see that right away, in verse 21, he makes a discovery about himself. And then based on that discovery, he makes a conclusion about himself, but then about the gospel. Okay? Okay? So what does he find, and what does he conclude? Look look with me at verse 21. He says, so I find it to be a law. Now, one of the things, as we read through this text, you're going to talk, he says law, and he's using law in two complete different sense, senses. In one place, like verse 21, and again in verse 23, he uses law to mean a principle, a force, a power. So I find this force to be at work, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. That is a principle that is always with him. When I want to be honest with the man and say, I would love to play golf with Johnny Miller, there's my shadow lying close at hand saying, take his money, go do it, you can do it. And that's always there. Then in verse 22, he uses law in a different sense, meaning law of Moses. And he says, for I delight in the law of God And I think this is one of those places you know we've been sharing that Paul basically does this as an autobiographical experience. And commentators are all torn: is Paul a Christian or a non-Christian here? And in one sense, those who are saying he's a non-believer are saying, How can Paul say he's sold as a slave to sin and he struggles with sin so much and he doesn't have victory and he seems to be backsliding? And what a he calls himself a wretched man. He can't possibly be a believer. I fall on the side of those commentators who say he's absolutely a believer here. And one of the reasons I think he's a believer is I don't think a non-believer can actually say, I delight in the law of God and then qualify it by saying, in my inmost self, in my inner being. So not only do I look at it like we look at a piece of artwork and say it's beautiful, Paul's not saying it in that sense. He's saying, no, in my truest self, that identity of who I am in Christ, I look at the law because of what it reveals about God. And in my inmost self, even though it basically reveals to me who I am, who my flesh is, I can look at it and I take great joy in it because it shows me God. So in my inmost being, I think only a believer can say something that's convicting and exposing me of what I am I still take great delight in. There's, to me, there's no way a non-believer can do that. And then, he says, but I also see in my members, so what is he discovering? What is his members? His members are just the parts of his body. I see in my hands. I see in my feet. I see in my brain, my thoughts, how I think. I see in my heart, how I feel, my affections. I see, and I saved this one to last, my tongue. And how I use my words. How biting I can be. How harsh I can be. How judgmental I can be. How self-righteous I can be. I see in my members another law. And this is not the law of Moses. This is that force, that power, that principle again. That law that is... Now listen. Look carefully at these words. Waging war. In other words, not leaving you alone for even a second. In other words... Besetting you, berating you, battering you, coming after you, not letting up. That's a fairly powerful shadow. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in me. So let me ask you this question. Let's start to apply this here a little bit. Are you aware of that within yourself? I mean, are you really aware of that? Functionally, I know we're sitting here and we're good Presbyterians. We're good Calvinists. We fly our tulip flag all over the place. Total depravity. And we believe, and we should. It's true. But do you know your personal depravity? Do you know that that shadow, that indwelling sin, that Paul... Can you say with Paul, I find this, I discover this... In other words, if we take as kind of the measuring rod of how we are to relate, how Jesus relates, and I think I'm being biblical here, aren't we called to be Christ-like? Isn't that what it means? Our sanctification, we're becoming more and more like Jesus Christ, so our behavior, not just our, but how we relate is to be conformed to Jesus Christ. So if that's kind of our measuring stick, our measuring rod, so to speak, we're to be Christ-like, where do we see how Christ relates? I think one of the best places to look is the Beatitudes. What a beautiful picture of how Jesus relates with humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek and gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the pure in heart and the merciful and the peacemakers. Not the peacekeepers. The peacemakers. So can we say that I find this within myself when I want to be humble there's arrogance right there lying close at hand when I want to be meek there's harshness lying close at hand when I want to be merciful there's judgmentalism lying close at hand or are we so completely sure of ourselves of our actions or our motives. I think if we take seriously this passage, we should have a healthy self-doubt about ourselves. Not a doubt about God, but a self-doubt, a functional self-doubt that ought to control how we relate to others. Because where does this show up? This shows up in our relationships. This shows up in how we relate to to another's. So see, when others think of you, do they think of the Beatitudes? We need to recognize when we want to do right, when we want to reflect Christ in the fullness of His truth, not just like parts of His truth, but to love and embrace all of His truth. What do we find close at hand? What do we find waging war? See, I read those words, waging war, and it kind of communicates to me. I sit there and go, hmm, something's waging war against the law of my mind, against my members. Am I taking seriously enough how I speak, how I feel, how I think, where my hand You know, all the things that my members, my hands, my feet, how I'm serving. Maybe this battle, the spirit against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit is more serious than I thought. So to sum up Paul's teaching here, what is it he discovers, I think Tim Keller puts it very well. Dr. Keller writes, first, Paul tells us that we now identify with the law of God. He says, a Christian can now delight in the law, which wasn't possible before. A Christian can also see its beauty and its perfection. None of these things were possible before we were converted. Paul says it's in his inner being that he rejoices in the law, like saying, my heart of hearts are my true self. Paul is here recognizing that we are all capable, we are all aware, so I guess I'm asking you the question, how aware are you, of conflicting desires, of, in a sense, multiple selves, And Dr. Keller writes, the great question we all face is so I have these divergent desires, these different selves, which is my true self? What do I most want? And he continues, and I think this is extremely encouraging. He says, now for a Christian, that question is settled, even though the conflict isn't settled. For Paul calls the law of God his inmost delight and even calls it the law of my mind. He says, I am myself in my mind a slave to God's law. Of course, he sees that there is still a powerful force of sin and rebellion within, but those desires are not truly him. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me a Christian has had, listen to these words, a Christian has had an identity transformation. Who you are is a new creation in Christ. And if you view yourself that way, why are you still trying to prove yourself? Why are you still trying to validate yourself? Your truest self delights in finds satisfaction in, finds meaning and purpose in, finds acceptance, finds worth, finds approval, finds significance in Jesus Christ. That is the real you. And if you know that's the real you, you can look at your sin, you can look at the shadow for what it is. You can look at yourself and say, that is true ugliness because who I am in Christ is true beauty. That is true immorality because who I am in Christ is just as gorgeous, just as moral, just as devoted, just as spiritual as Jesus is. The Christian ought to be the least defensive, least blame-shifting, most self-honest person in the face of the earth. And friends, do you recognize how beautiful a community, how attractive a community we could be? If we weren't so defensive to the world out there? Have you looked around at the world lately and instead of seeing all the polarization and division, just look into the hearts of people and see how lonely they are? Greg Thompson is a PCA pastor that I'm kind of fond of and think, of, you know, follow in his writings a lot. And he describes the mission of the church beautifully. I love how he puts it. He says, The church is simply to be. And see, it's not this great, extraordinary thing we're doing. He says, we are to be the faithful presence of love in the midst of the absences of the world. Now, I want you to think about that. God is love, right? First John 4 says, God is love. Love dwells within us. You're united to Jesus Christ, which means you are indwelt, you are participating, you are united to love itself. So when we live in our families, in our neighborhoods, where we walk, when we're online on Facebook, when we're doing whatever with tweets, when we're doing, I'll, I'll quote my, one of my favorite coaches, Bill Belichick, when we're doing InstaFace, or whatever all those things are called, you are to be the faithful presence of love, because the world can't see Jesus Christ. He's at the right side of heaven right now. You know what the world sees? Jesus' body. Jesus is flesh. You're the faithful presence of that love in the midst of the absences of the world. Just think of what are some of the... The world has an absence of love, an absence of connection, an absence of intimacy, an absence of joy, an absence of peace. Boy, can we be a beautiful community if we quit defending ourselves and doing it in the name of thinking we're defending God. Can I tell you something? God doesn't need our defense. He's pretty strong without us. I think he can handle himself. Maybe we should get busy being a faithful presence of love in the midst of the absences of the world. If we, would not be, if we could say, my truest self, I delight in the law of God. I am who I am in Christ, and that's my greatest joy. How free can we be to be a community of love in the world? Paul says, bow number one. That's what I discover. That's what I find. And based on that, he makes a conclusion. And his conclusion has two parts. Okay? More the bad and then the good. We're getting to the good. Look at his conclusion. He starts, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? How many of you are sitting out there and going, okay, Paul, a little bit drastic, don't you think? Pouring it on a little thick. Wretched man that I am. Can't you just say, oh, I blow it a few times. I'm flawed. I've got some character. You know, I'm trying the best I can, but I make a few mistakes. That's not Paul's self-assessment, is it? His self-assessment as a Christian is wretched man that I am. Almost like saying, chief of sinners. Who will, and and notice he doesn't say, who will help me? Who will help me overcome? I have a bad self-image. Who will help me get a better self-image? That's not what he says here. He says, who will deliver me? Who will rescue me from this body of death? Almost sounds like Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 6. I think Paul very much in Isaiah 6, is dying to himself, pronouncing a curse on himself. Remember what Isaiah said? Paul words it, wretched man that I am. Isaiah said, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Where has Paul seen the King? Where have his eyes seen the King, the Lord Almighty? I'll tell you exactly where he's seen him. When you see the law of the Lord, you see the King. When you're looking into the law, you know what you're seeing? You are seeing a perfect portrait of who God is. You're seeing a perfect picture of who God is. In his majesty, in his excellence, in his greatness, in his beauty, in his power, in his justice, in his truth. And Paul says, I've seen the king, the Lord Almighty. When I look at the law of the Lord, I've seen the king. And what does it do? It causes me to say, I make this conclusion, wretched man that I am who will rescue me, who will deliver me from this body of death. You know what Paul is doing? He is dying to himself. He's not saying he's flawed and needs a better self-image. He is dying. He's remembering Jesus' words, if anyone wants to follow me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me daily. For whoever wants to save his life, whoever wants to hold on to his rightness, hold on to his agenda, hold on to his preferences, hold on to his ambitions, hold on to his dreams, whoever holds on to himself, here's the promise. He will lose life. He loses his own self. But whoever loses his own life for me and for my sake. Whoever says, I take God's marching orders. I've died to myself, and God, I am... Like Mary, when she found out she was pregnant with Jesus and didn't understand it, treasured these things in her heart, had no clue. Talk about mystery of mysteries. The virgin birth. Little bit of mystery there. And what does she say? She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. Before Jesus ever was born and uttered the words he must deny himself and lose, what was Mary doing? She was losing her life. She was saying, I don't get it. I don't understand this. This doesn't make any sense to me. This is mystery of mysteries. But I'm a servant of the Lord. May it be done to me as it is according to your word. See, do you want to know why we don't experience more ongoing, continuous renewal? You don't want to understand why our prayers seem so anemic? Why our witnessing, either shallow or non existent? Why our worship, dry and stale? Why our hearts, cold? We don't want to die. We refuse. It's a battle of the wills, and we refuse to die to ourselves. We hold on to being in control of our own lives. Not being in control, saying, wretched man that I am. See, we have to face it, that's a scary prospect. If I make that conclusion, that declaration about myself, and I say, who will rescue me from this body of death? I'm left not knowing. What will that rescue look like? If God really rescues me, he can ask me to do anything. He may ask me to go to Africa He may ask me to go to Northern California. He may ask me to say no to playing golf with Johnny Miller. He may ask me to love my neighbor. He may ask me, when I know I'm right and my neighbor is wrong, he may ask me to be quiet and hold my tongue so I can be a faithful presence of love because maybe this person's absence of love is more important than my saying, I'm right! He may ask me anything, and he's the Lord, which is why we crown him with many crowns, and I am his servant. Paul makes the conclusion, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does Jesus give us? What is it that will enable us to say, I'm the Lord's servant, may it be done to me according to your word. Think about our salvation, the gospel. And friends, I'm afraid we truncate and reduce the gospel too much when all we look at it is as justification. When all we're doing is saying the gospel is forgiveness and it gets us to heaven when we die, we are making so small and we wonder why we're not willing to let go of control of our lives. The gospel is so much bigger than that. When Paul is thinking, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, I can't help but he's thinking about the truths and the realities of like Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the, Lord, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he begins to enumerate them, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be set apart and blameless in his sight. In love, he chose and predestined us for adoption. So in other words, there's a legal portion and a personal portion. He chose us to be adopted before him. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He tsunamied, He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will. He cares about you, He communes enough with Him to say, let me call you into my council chambers and open my heart to you, and I'm going to share with you the mystery of my will. The sending of Jesus Christ. To unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit as a down payment of this. Guaranteeing the things of the future. Do you understand the fullness, the comprehensiveness, the scope, the width, the height? That's why Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3. May we be strengthened because we're too weak to understand how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know the love that surpasses knowledge that we may be filled with all the fullness of God so that we walk out into the world full so we can be a faithful presence of love in the midst of the absences of the world thanks be to God through Jesus Christ who regenerates us turning our hearts of stone to hearts of flesh giving us new life he doesn't One of C.S. Lewis's most famous chapters in Mere Christianity. He doesn't want to make nice men. He wants to make new men. He justifies us, declaring us both forgiven and righteous. And that's the legal part. Then he adopts us, the personal part. Then he's sanctifying us. And then one day, he's going to glorify us. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. Haven't quoted Lord of the Rings in a while. Sam Ganges right. Everything sad is going to become untrue in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Friends, what is it you are saying when you say, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord? What is it you're declaring when you say, who will rescue me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. Is it only a small gospel? He gives me a fire ticket, fire insurance to heaven. So I better just kind of be quiet and put up with this life until someday I go to heaven? Or are you overwhelmed with the glory of the good news that Jesus is the world's true Lord? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, friends, take comfort. Be filled, be overwhelmed with the glory of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and... and just thank you that nobody could make up a message like the gospel this there's no way this could be myth because this is just so counter to anything we could ever think about and lord what i would pray is that we would just one we'd have some humility and assume we don't get the gospel forgive us for our arrogance that we think we know it all i know i see your word and i go i don't have a clue I've been at this for 30 years and I'm like, I just don't have a clue. But Lord, I pray that our eyes would be opened wider and wider each and every moment, every day to the glories of what you've done for us in Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your sovereignty. Thank you for your love. May we truly be overwhelmed by the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.